1: At $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
2: Hey, it's Jesse. Just want to let you know in the interview you're going to hear, Sarah mistakenly identified a radio host who was fired for making racist tweets. She said it was Opie, but it was in fact Opie's former co-host, Anthony Cumio. <music> hi hello how's it going yeah i know but welcome to good one a podcast about jokes i'm your host vulture senior editor jesse david fox each episode a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy sometimes the jokes are small like a baby but you know like like a small baby The joke will be a minute long, maybe two, will be a one-liner or or two-liner. I think for the Neil Brennan episode, it was like a short three-second throwaway line. Other times, the jokes are big babies. I know as a former big baby. Jen Kirkman, Bill Burr, Tick Notaro, they all had jokes well over 10 minutes. No one touches Gary Goldman, whose joke was an unbelievable 25 minutes, but this week's joke definitely tries. The joke writer in question and my guest today is stand-up comedian, TV writer, and soon-to-be author Sarah Schaefer. The subject is her 16.5-minute magnum opus about her first trip to Hobby Lobby, the infamous arts and craft store who is best known for winning a Supreme Court case that allowed them to offer health insurance policies that excluded covering certain birth controls. Last week, our guest Daniel Slass spoke about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival from the perspective of a UK comedian and how they're expected to bring a new show there every year. In this episode, Sarah talks about what the festival is like for comedians coming from America, who try their hands at adapting their style to something that leans closer to the one-person show. To set the scene, Sarah started working on the joke in early 2017, before performing it as part of her Edinburgh show that summer. However, the version you'll hear is from her 2019 album, Live, Laugh, Love. Since there are a few versions of the joke floating around, we get the name of one of her fictional characters mixed up a few times, but don't worry, we figure it out eventually. Sarah and I spoke in February of this year. So here is Sarah Schaefer. Enjoy. Hi. Thank you for joining me.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Um it oh, it seems like the the majority of the joke we're gonna talk about was written between May and August 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to start a little before then and the election of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um you wrote a piece for the Scotland Herald six months into his presidency that I, that I loved that I felt was the first thing to really capture what I had been feeling as a consumer of comedy and it, I'd eventually write about myself. And the title was Why Trump Jokes Aren't Funny. Um, <laughs> uh, I can I if, comment on that sure. really
3: quickly? I did not choose that title. And sure, I was actually course. very angry about it because I hate when people say blank jokes they, aren't funny. Yeah, to say aren't anyway, funny implies that they can one, possibly yeah. be funny. Of course they can. Yeah.
2: Anyway. Uh, um I imagine your feelings have evolved, but I want to sort of first start where you were at at that mm-hmm. moment. Um, can you talk about those first few months, what that felt like you and, um, as you describe,
3: audiences' buttholes? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it really started during the election year yeah. when I was on the road a lot. And I was also on the road a lot in 2017. And I would perform in a lot of different venues in uh Not just clubs, colleges, festivals, like just, I I was really doing it all. And I am not famous enough to have my own hardcore fan base that Mm -hmm. would fill those spaces. So I'm all, and even to this day, I'm still mostly performing for a a random collection of people. And some people come in there without knowing anything about me because they're idiots.
2: And they're just like, time to go to a comedy show. And
3: you're a comedy show. You don't go, oh, I'm going to go see music tonight and not at least determine the genre and get mad when you're in there. You're like, I didn't want to see death metal. What is this? You know, I want my money back. Like, so I have people who come and um, don't know anything about me. Um, And so I would, during that time, I was contending with a lot of prickly reactions to just the most minor mentions Mm -hmm. of things. Like I, I had a joke about, that very topic about how you can't say anything on the internet without some blowhard coming by and getting mad about hillary clinton and because i literally saw a picture of the grand canyon like the most beautiful picture i'd ever seen of the grand canyon a a rainbow is going down into Mm -hmm. the grand canyon it was posted by the Department of the Interior. Uh, so it's like the nerdiest people in the government are posting a really pretty picture of our one of our great treasures. Yeah. And the first comment and it said like storm approaching the Grand Canyon or whatever. And the very first comment underneath I just happened to look was like you want to see a storm coming? Check out filthy Hillary Clinton. You know? It's just like Not even the Grand Canyon can post a picture without someone getting pissed off. So uh, when I I was telling that story for a while and just the mention of her name, people couldn't even hear what I was Mm -hmm. saying. And I remember one dude cupped his ears, closed his eyes and started going, "Mm -mm -mm," like shaking his head like a little fucking kid who was like. You know, being confronted with, like, something naughty. And he was so childish. And I remember seeing that face. I'll never forget it. And just being like, oh, you can't even say anything. Like, yeah. I I haven't even made a comment about whether or not I like her or not. And this person is already reacting. And it just made it really hard to even get to the point when you're already feeling. I'm an extremely sensitive person. Like, yeah. I really can tell in a room like tight buttholes. (laughs) Like I can, it's it's been a big challenge for me, comedically speaking. But um,
2: I guess describe to to those (laughs) who don't know what you mean by tight buttholes.
3: Like you can just feel an energy in a room of, wow, some of these people hate me. Like there's a searing hatred or there's body language or just a tenseness in the room. And sometimes it's just silence that's telling you that, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're just not responding in any way. And, Um, so I got really afraid of that feeling. I hate that feeling. My job as a comedian is to make people laugh and feel loose and joy. And I'm not someone who enjoys, I like building tension and breaking it, but this was not letting me do that. It was just an immediate knee jerk reaction or you just, you can't, you know, and Nikki Glazer in that, in that piece, I asked her a question. She was like, "I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to know who in the audience
4: mm-hmm.
3: likes Donald Trump. Because then I can't stand that person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, it's from personal from a personal place of hating her audience. Yeah. So it's everyone. And I and since then, I've made jokes like, you know, you really, you really could start a civil war in a comedy club right now. <laughs> just like say something really crazy and just." Fight and leave. Yeah.
2: I mean, as you mentioned the piece, which I thought was <laughs> really good, which is that it's not just the people that don't like him or don't want to hear the joke. It's that literally that like, even if people agree with you, we are just like, I, yeah. I don't want this now.
3: Well, yeah, because you're in a room with other people and now yeah. everyone knows, based on who's laughing and who's upset, yeah. who's who. Yeah. And you don't want that. You don't want to be, I'm like, I wouldn't, in a comedy club, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I'm sitting next to like people i can't stand and i think are actually like could potentially be racist you know (laughs) it like
2: breaks the entire idea of a comedy club which is like you're going to laugh with other people and be united as a a group yeah and so
3: it is very it it divides yeah
2: um one other question before we play the joke what is your history with crafts
3: oh crafting (laughs) uh well i've been crafting my whole life Mm -hmm. um i love doing things with my hands um I just love making things. I love measuring. <laughs> I love threads and me- patterns. I love following patterns. Um it brings me great peace. How did um, you
2: st- how did you start?
3: Um just as a child as a as a little girl, you are encouraged as a girl to pursue things with threads and cloth. <laughs> and uh making and painting and dollhouses and mm-hmm. you know like Anything like that, but uh, as an adult, it really started um, just a need for a hobby and to have something to do while I'm watching TV. And um, s- part of it was living in New York for a long time. I would crochet on the subway mm-hmm. to pass the time. Um, and now I enjoy cross-stitch uh, the most or any kind of tiny embroidery type stuff because I'm not very good at designing my own unless it's very simple. I'm mm-hmm. not an artist in that way. I'm more of a craft person who can follow other people's grand designs.
2: (laughs) So let's listen to the the story of you and your journey to find a basket.
3: (laughs) You know, for me, one of the things I struggle with the most is that um, I want so badly to be pure. (laughs) Why is that funny? I'm not talking sexually pure. No, 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 no. <laughs> that ship has sailed. <laughs> okay. I mean, like ideologically pure. You know, I like to think of myself as a good person. I I volunteer. I donate. I vote. I use my legitimate outrage uh, against injustice in the world, and I try to turn it into action. You know, I do that, but it never feels like it's enough. And I always worry that just one slip up will erase all the good I've done. That's the black and white world I feel like we live in right now, and especially for me and my particular brand of anxiety that I'm working on in therapy. <laughs> so when I, give, I want to give you an example of this in my life and how it plays out. Uh, I recently faced a real crisis of conscience while creating a craft nook in my
4: home. (laughs) I'll explain.
3: A craft nook, if you're not familiar, is when you become overwhelmed with a desire to create an area in your home, a nook, if you will, where you can display your crafting supplies in an organized and adorable manner. (laughs) completely customizable you can put little shelves and hooks little baskets to store all your different supplies I have all my my embroidery floss on clothespins arranged by color on little clotheslines how many of you are getting a little bit wet right now I'm dripping So while I was building Craft Nook, that's its name. First name Craft, last name Nook. While I was building Craft Nook, there was an empty area. There was a hole, a void. And I knew what went there. I needed like a little basket, like a thing to hold stuff in that I could hang there. Uh, something vintage looking, something rustic, like, like the kind of thing you'd collect eggs in on an old farm, obviously. <laughs> That's what went there. I had a vision. So I'm driving around Los Angeles to all the big stores. You know, in America, we've got it good. We have one store the size of a city block per type of item. Like, we've got BevMo. They only sell beverages. Dicks. They only sell dicks. Just kidding. (laughs) They sell sporting goods to dicks. For crafting, ooh, the the list is long. We've got Joann's, we've got Michael's, Blick, the list goes on and on. But I'm driving around and I can't find this basket and I'm getting pissed. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Go home and order it on Amazon and get it delivered via drone in one hour? I want it now. <laughs> so frustrating. So... I'm about to give up and head home. And then just then, like across the street, I see a store, a big store, a store I've never seen before, but I've heard of it because it's been in the news. It's called a Hobby Lobby. (laughs) Um, You don't know. You don't know what happened. So for those of you who don't, (laughs) who didn't just groan. (laughs) Those of you who don't know, Hobby Lobby was in the news because they went, it's a chain of retail stores, a a corporation that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States of America to prove that they hate women. Now that's just my interpretation of it. (laughs) Their interpretation would be different. They would say they went to the Supreme Court to fight for what they believe to be their right to refuse to cover certain kinds of birth control for their female employees on religious grounds because they believe that those types of birth control are literally abortion. Now, they're allowed to believe that. I'm allowed to disagree with that and think that what they did was dangerous and set a very dangerous precedent for, to open the door for all kinds of discrimination. That's just what I believe. So... Forget what you believe. We're not here to debate that stuff. But given what I've just told you, should I be shopping in a hobby lobby? No. Fuck hobby lobby. Resist and persist, bitch. Don't clap yet.
4: <laughs>
3: but there I am standing in front of a Hobby Lobby. I'm already out of the car. I'm like, what's in there? I mean, I'm ready to fight, but I don't even know what it is that they sell. I should know my enemy, right? I should at least figure out what the hoblob's about. I should get in there. I'm not going to touch anything. I'm not going to buy anything. Maybe I'll... Fuck shit up a little. Maybe I'll hide some plan B in the merchandise for the employees to find. <laughs> Everything is going to be cool. So I go in <laughs> and the first. The first thing I'm confronted with in the lobby of the Hobby Lobby, I'm not even in the store yet, is this display of all of these little like chest of drawers, like little dressers. They look like antique, vintage like, card catalogs. You know what I mean? They're like reclaimed barnwood, and each drawer is a different color. I see it and I'm just like, <laughs>
4: <laughs> What is this place? Oh, it's cute.
3: engage your core (laughs) you will not be broken Schaefer. just do this we can do this i go in and i was not ready i don't know if you've been inside a hobby lobby i was not ready it is the most extravagant insane big craft store you've ever seen it's bananas they have everything cardstock strings glues glitters ornaments well, year-round they had halloween decorations out in may they had a whole aisle of wicker baskets buy one get 10 free fuck they had dollhouse furniture didn't see that coming and all of it all of it is just doused in the blood of christ It was just intense I'm going through the store and I'm just kind of shaking and sweating because I truly am like, it's a wonderland for someone like me. I'm just like, this is incredible. It's like meeting your enemy and then like immediately falling in love with them. It's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. I'm going through the store kind of shaking like, this isn't fair. I get to the middle of the store and I I come upon the biggest display I've ever seen. Of one type of item it's like the size of this club and what it was was inspirational quotes <laughs> and it wasn't just on driftwood it was on everything they had inspirational quotes on anything they could fit words on mailboxes rocking horses spinning wheels spinning wheels that's hard to do they did it <laughs> and that's when i was grounded right back in my reality i was like nah fuck you hobby lobby i'm out I made a beeline for the parking lot, but before I could get out of the store, it was like a ray of angel light shone down upon the basket that I needed for Craft Nook. The exact thing I had imagined was right there, and I was like, oh, oh no. "I look at the price tag, and two ninety-nine. Damn it! <laughs> ah, it's such a good deal." I wrestled with my conscience for a good one to two seconds, picked it up, got in line, bought it, get in my car, start driving home. Halfway home, it hits me what I've done. I'm like,
4: what the hell?
3: You fake ass feminist! You are such a hypocrite. You, are, you didn't last a second. You live a life of privilege and you just fucked it all up. You just let it all go. This is why Trump won. No, it's worse. I'm Trump. That's the thing. I think we don't like to admit it, but all of us have a little bit of Trump in our psyche. We get some of the stuff he does. We're like, I might do that if I was in that position. (laughs) Admit it. It's like, we can't help it. Like Sigmund Freud, he came up with the parts of the personality like ego, super ego, id. He forgot one, the Trump. (laughs) The Trump is in the wind. The Trump is when you lose your convictions. You seek candy and you just take it. You don't last two feet. You just, you're just in the wind. Whenever Trump does a press conference, I always imagine him behind a curtain like before he comes out with his people. And they're like smacking him in the face and throwing water on him and being like, say it again! He's like, Nazis are bad. <laughs> say it again! Nazis are bad. One more time. Nazis are bad. Okay, go, 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 go. He gets up to the podium. He's like, some of the Nazis are very fine people. It's like, ah! He didn't last two feet! That's the Trump. I was the Trump in that moment. I didn't last two feet. Going with the plan, it just goes to shit. I got home, I put the basket in craft Nook. It looked awesome. I was feeling kind of guilty every time I looked at it. And no joke, that same week, Hobby Lobby popped up in the news again. This time because they got in trouble. They got caught buying stuff illegally off the black market, smuggling. What were they buying? Ancient tablets from Iraq, old pieces of rock. I know. I was just as confused as you are at this point. I'm like, why does Hobby Lobby need these old things from Iraq? Like, are they going to put inspirational quotes on them and sell them? Like, that seems like a bad over-under. Okay. And then I kept reading, and they're like, no, Hobby Lobby has been trying to buy up all the old artifacts from the time of the Bible. This is true. So they could bring it back to America, where it belongs. Uh, as, As we know, Jesus is American and they wanted to put all their old stuff that they could find into their Bible museum. This is real, Hobby Lobby, the people who own Hobby Lobby opened a Bible museum in DC, you can go to it right now. Now this is the point where I started actually feeling empathy and sadness for Hobby Lobby, because I was like, I mean, who amongst us? like seriously think about it if you were opening a museum you would do anything you could to get at least one old thing in there why you can't have a museum and not have one artifact in there otherwise just start a just build a website save us all time the museum is so you can go be in the same room as something musty and old that's why you go there so they were like clearly desperate like I love imagining the president of Hobby Lobby like in a conference room like pissed off pounding his fist on the table like I don't care how you get it Cynthia but we need something in the museum that Jesus our Lord and Savior personally touched now you go get it I don't care how you get it if you don't get it you can find yourself a new job (laughs) later that night Cynthia's at her laptop shaking (laughs) Lord Jesus, God, my hand's on the interweb. Please help me find something that you touched for our music. And now she's on the dark web somehow. <laughs> oh, where am I? Oh, help me. Help me, sir, help me. And then someone helps her, and she gets what she needs. That's, I honestly think that's literally how it happened. <laughs> And then they got caught. They got in trouble for it. But I was reading this, and I was like, well, this is interesting. Because I always kind of thought of Hobby Lobby, even if I disagree with them. I mean, they're hardcore, you know? They spent years and years of time and millions of dollars, I assume, in legal fees to go all the way to the Supreme Court to change the laws of our land around their beliefs. That's commitment. you got to admit they're walking their walk. They're living by their ideals. They are living the word of God as they see it. But last I checked, the Bible also says thou shalt not steal, bitch. <laughs> so now I'm thinking I can keep that basket in Kraft Nook, and we're fine. <laughs> Somehow even there. But then things got even more, more complicated, trickier, and then a new detail about this story came out, which was who they were doing business with on this black market. Now, who do you think Hobby Lobby, a Christian, American, patriotic, family values, far-right company, would like to be doing business with? Like, who do they want to be buying and selling things with? Like, who do they want to be, like, chumming up with? Isis? Was that a guess? No? Well, that's who it was. And I know Cynthia didn't realize it was Isis. I know she didn't know but she they were literally giving money to Isis.
4: That's insane.
3: I'm kind, and I'm like kind of laughing about it. I'm like that is so crazy. But then I'm looking, I'm like staring at Craft and I'm like I'm Isis.
4: Uh, I
3: thought, how am I going to make this work where everyone gets what they want? Okay, I'm going to keep the basket. It was $2.99. It's just a drop in a bucket. But to make things right, I'm going to put my birth control in the basket. That's where I keep it. (laughs) And you know, Hobby Lobby, I get it. They wanted to make their museum perfect. I wanted my craft nook to be perfect. From now on, let's just agree to no longer do business with terrorists. Just going forward. Let's not do that again.
2: And we're back after listening to that joke.
3: What a, mm. what a funny joke. What a journey. Um, <laughs> okay, so this was all leading to uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which I did in August 2017. And probably a year prior... Mm. Is when I started making Craft Nook physically in my home, and so a year
2: prior to Edinburgh, to Edinburgh. So this and then I decided I was going
3: to do Edinburgh in like January of 2017, and they make you like send in your name of the show mm. and a brief concept like right away, <laughs> and I they were like, don't worry if you don't have it figured out, it's fine. Just you yeah. just have to make it loosely like that's part of what hannah gatsby's nanette the title nanette is she'd come up with the title before writing oh the that's show. why she says
2: i thought there's gonna be a lot of material there." yeah
3: yeah so apparently at, at edinburgh this is very common like people will submit their show mm-hmm. without having written it and some people are like writing it the day before which i did not do thank god but um
2: and to a little explain edinburgh is a festival in scotland yeah. that is a comedian goes, and they do 30 straight days yeah. of shows, and they tend to be more one-person showy. Yeah, an but-
3: hour. Uh, yeah, they encourage, or, well, look, you can do whatever you want. There's all kinds of shows. There's music. There's theater. There's drama that plays. Mm-hmm. Total insanity. Yeah, um, Literally, like, 10,000 shows a day. I'm not <laughs> exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what you're up against. <laughs> but... <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I did sort of a hybrid stand-up and loosely themed yeah. show, and it was called Little White Box. And um, so in
2: January, you knew, yeah, you were working. I knew the
3: loose themes, mm-hmm. and which um, were like, uh, it was like Trump, Jesus, and America. Like I had like two jokes, mm-hmm. you know, written that I built around, which is a great challenge for me because I'd never written around yeah. a theme or to a per- specific purpose like that before. Um, so I think, I don't remember. I think I was just, I think I was doing this podcast thing, experimenting with my own new podcast and I was just blabbing about it, Mm. craft nook on my podcast. And then I was like, Oh, that could be a joke. And I tried it out and
2: just the craft nook part pre hobby lobby. Yeah.
3: Oh, it was just me talking about craft nook. Um, and then hobby lobby. So
2: the craft nook, the name of it as a entity was that 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 part Mm -hmm. of the joke was one of the first parts of the joke
3: yes um and then hobby lobby came into it because i was putting it together and i was like i it was the first time i'd been in a hobby lobby and i was just completely horrified at how incredible it was (laughs) you know so it was probably january or february
2: so you're so you're in the hobby lobby yeah are you by the time
3: you step foot, you're like, this is going to be material immediately? Sort of. No, I did. I was in there feeling those feelings. Yeah. I was like, this isn't fair. I hate how cool this store is, <laughs> and a cool is very yeah. open to interpretation. <laughs> yes. There, um, I was completely focused on the task at hand, which was decorating craft nook. I was not thinking about anything to do with jokes, because mm-hmm. um, that's usually how I am with material up until this point with doing this Edinburgh show, which is just, it wouldn't occur to me until years later that something that had happened in my life could be a joke, mm-hmm. a story I've been telling friends, yeah. and then suddenly I'll be on stage one night and I'll go, oh, I should tell that story and just see. Yeah. Um, but this time period, I was specifically writing jokes, but I still was mining older experiences. So the Hobby Lobby thing kind of came in like, ooh, ooh, I could... Uh, talk about this and maybe tie it together with this theme of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the joke just became so long. And get, and now, I mean, it's even... I can't even do the joke anymore because it's too long. And it's so really, it can only you, work yeah. in certain settings um, if I feel comfortable because it does touch on things that I think are, for me, a little edgy. Um, meaning like abortion and... Um, and, and I do, you know, reveal that I'm, uh, you know, uh, first off, if you come see me perform in, in the first 10 seconds, you don't know that I'm a liberal feminist. <laughs> You're not paying attention just by what I look like yeah, yeah. Um, and how I talk and stuff. But you never know. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on in this joke and like stuff. Oh, and this all you know, the you know, stuff you know. with Hobby Lobby. Literally, I started talking about the experience of going in there. And the feeling of like, oh my god, I'm not supposed to be shopping in this store politically. Like I'm, I, it, I should be boycotting Hobby Lobby, yeah. but I'm in here and I love it, and I have to buy this thing because it's what I need. Um, and then I believe all that stuff where they got caught, like yes. smuggling. Stuff it 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 happened then, yeah, like in 2017, right? Yeah,
2: July 2017. So I
3: was like down the path, yeah. So I had to add this stuff in, yeah, and it was just so intense. And then, like, even after Edinburgh, like new stuff has happened, which I didn't add on the album because it had literally just happened and I didn't have time to get it in. But like, also some of the documents that, um, Mm. like old archival ancient documents that they had found in the Bible Museum were fake. And so I made this whole segment where Carol, is it Carol? Cheryl. Or, Cheryl. Cheryl is like dipping paper into tea. You know, when you were growing up and you yeah. made old documents and you dip it in tea and then you singe the edges with like a match? I would like do a whole act out of her doing that. I'm like, Lord, God, me to make these documents old looking.
2: <laughs> I, didn't,
3: I mean- Something about
2: you talking about it, it is a very Romeo and Juliet esque story. Yeah. <laughs> a love story between you and this basket and then sort of the the families. Yeah. So the joke has seven sections as mm-hmm. it's recorded. Um I would oh, say Oh wow,
3: you you deconstructed my joke. I love well, it. It clearly has it's has yeah. re-
2: not only they seven sections, but they very neatly follow a hero's journey. Ah! <laughs> I love it. So I will go through it so yes. um the people that also people listening, um Just so you don't know what Save the Mm. Cat is, because apparently it is not famous. There is this book called Save the Cat that is like the intro to screenwriting book Mm. of of the last 20 years that very clearly lines out the beat of a classic sort of Hollywood movie. But the hero's journeys are sort of the classic story structure. And this follows one, which is uh, section one is purity, which is the setup. Then Craft Nook, which is the catalyst Uh or call to action. Stores, the section where you talk about the stores, that is the debate. The debate continues into the section mm. about the about Hobby Lobby section, which is also ends with the cross the threshold moment. <laughs> um, then inside the Hobby Lobby is uh, what the book calls fun and games or promise of the premise. Right. It is the second act of the story. Um, then all the Trump is all's lost, dark night of the soul. <laughs> um, and then the Hobby Lobby Museum is the finale. It, I'm, I'm sh- I can't imagine you thought of it this way way but maybe did but how aware are you of when you're thinking about this especially with Edinburgh of like the structure this story
3: I am not that aware I I'm vaguely aware of it yeah but I think my one of my best skills in writing and in uh stand-up is storytelling and I've fought against it for years because storytelling naturally also can lead to long Mm. and length and when you're coming up in comedy, there's a period where you're being pressured to do very short, bite-sized Because you sets. might have, like, five minutes. Five minutes for Montreal, five minutes for your audition, five minutes for a late-night set. And things happened in my career, and people said things that made me think I had to abandon my storytelling, which is what I started out as, mm-hmm. essentially. I would do structured stories with jokes and payoffs. That would fill my entire 10 minutes or eight minutes, however long I was getting at the time. I mean, even
2: if you got 15 minutes now, this story is still too long for 15 minutes.
3: So this type of joke is my favorite. But uh, now, finally, I'm in a place in my career where I think I have the ability to just go back to my roots. But I've always been a natural storyteller. And when I first wrote my first television script, I was overwhelmed with the structure. and then when I was done with it, I realized I already knew mm-hmm. inherently because I consume so much of this stuff. I think some people think they know too, uh, and then they don't, but yeah. I actually do. <laughs> I think I actually do. It just feels Well, I told right. you that you did, so yeah. I think Well, now I, I know. You've confirmed it for yeah. me.
2: <laughs> so you, you mentioned Edinburgh. When you say you wrote to the assignment, what does that sort of mean in in practice. Are you like sitting down and- Yes.
3: I was um, I was transcribing um, my set so into rec- record and then yeah, listen and, to it back. And typing it out and I've done this process before, but not on such an intense level for so long. Um, Like for my first album, I transcribed all my jokes and I tweaked them Mm -hmm. typing wise and, you know, worked on it that way. But this was like extended for like a full six months of just like really intensely every night recording it, listening back, tweaking the script. I had like what uh, I had a script. And so much of the writing came down to transition and making it feel like a cohesive show, which I, I barely accomplished. I feel like I barely accomplished that. After going to Edinburgh and seeing other people's shows and seeing what I could do, uh, I realized that stringing together a full hour of stand-up in a way that feels like its own show that really has a cohesive theme, um, I could have done more. And maybe if I had started, like, okay, I'm going to write a show about Jesus Mm -hmm. and just do that that would have been easier than what I had done, which was I have three jokes I really like and I want to tell them. <laughs> and and they're <laughs> so somewhat
2: adjacent to each other.
3: Yeah, and there's a lot in my Edinburgh show. There's stuff that's like my Christian upbringing. There's um, stuff about my mom dying. These are, th- and a lot of material I've have now have put on hold that I can't wait to go back to, but I don't know what to do with it yet. So,
2: had you been exposed to this? I mean, I think it's important context-wise, which is sort of like, in the UK and in Australia, this sort of form is the standard. Yes. Had you been exposed to those type of comedians before you went into it?
3: I had done Melbourne yeah, um, for two weeks uh, the year prior. And that was my first exposure to those shows. But it really wasn't until Edinburgh that I saw this sort of, I saw Nanette there in person. Um, and it was truly one of the best shows I've ever seen. And I will fight, physically fight. Any comedian, I will meet you at the stand on Thursday night. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be out before, but <laughs> no, I'll be we're back. Gonna sta- leak this clip. I'll be yeah, leak it. Tag people um, that you know will be triggered by it. Yeah, you know, we know, we know who we're talking about. Yeah, we do. Uh, no, I I I loved that. I thought it was an incredible piece of not only performance but also comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father. <laughs> Watched Nanette, and he is a seventy-three-year-old, lifelong Republican, white man, mm-hmm. Southerner, and he loved it. He was like, it was incredible. So I'm just saying, you know, it's. I think if you go into it with an, a preconceived notion and attitude, then you might not like it. But anyway, um, but uh, that sh- I saw sure. that show. I saw a lot of shows in. Edinburgh and some were good and some weren't but I saw the, what, what people were doing and um, I saw the whole range of you know quality and what made the better ones better and what made the weaker ones weaker and um, did
2: it change how you approached even this story which is a longer
3: piece um, it, it definitely let me tell that I would not have developed that joke the Hobby Lobby thing as much as I did if I hadn't done Edinburgh and it is one of my favorite jokes I've ever told. Cause I think I'm actually saying something for mm. real in it. And, and it's funny. And I, 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 and also I'm like, it could be funnier. I, I should, I should keep going back to it, but I don't know what it's on this album and I don't know what to do with it now. But, and it's like, I can't even put it online. I could, I could, I could put a video on YouTube and now I guess there's IGTV mm. to let you go longer. I don't know. But uh, it seems like a lot of work to caption that. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't have time for that shit.
2: (laughs) We'll be right back with more Sarah Schaefer.
0: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity v a 29.com. dot com
2: and we're back. um so i want to go section by section and talk about the the parts and sort of the thinking that went into it. Mm-hmm. um so section one, purity, uh, the oh, yeah. setup. yeah, um you know in, in interviews, you've talked about. Um, how you have a complicated relationship with rules and mm-hmm. being and being good. Yeah. I feel like this section seems to be really a clear distillation of yeah. this. Can you talk about sort of that history, sort of how Trump did or did not disrupt that, and how to sort of then distill it into this idea of purity?
3: Um, well, <laughs> wow, I've done a lot of thinking on this because I did just finish a memoir oh, <laughs> that gosh. comes out in August that has a lot of this in it. Not not a ton, but a little bit of it. Um I I had a traumatic incident in childhood um involving my dad um wherein and I don't want to give it too much away cuz it's mm. like a big part of my book. Sure. But um <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> you're going to have to fucking buy the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah because I put so much work into it. <laughs> but I had things happen growing up. I was predispositioned to be a rule follower, genetically speaking. I don't, you know, personality, they don't know 100% where it comes from, but this was already part of my personality baked in the moment I came out. Um, and then I, I had this traumatic incident involving my father where he made a huge mistake. And he had to rebuild his whole life and we had to go with him. Mm-hmm. And it was really... Big and f- for a twelve-year-old me, especially, but for our- my whole family. And after that, just just to he, not be too. Can you say the general interest? Im- of people? It involved <laughs> finance. Great. He made some. A I big just feel mistake. like people
2: yeah. will be like, "Did her dad murder somebody?" No, he did
3: not murder anyone. Great. He he made a he made a mistake and he made a Great. wrong, very wrong, morally wrong choice. Great. That he that he then corrected, which was the part that I think most people. That's a very unique, just from me talking to people, it's a unique experience mm-hmm. where someone comes forward and is like, I've made a, m-. before anyone, he didn't get caught, he like stopped it. He was yeah. like, hey, I've, I've been doing this and I have to stop and and come what may. I can't live like this anymore. Yeah. And um, that hardened in me this idea that, one, you do something wrong, um, it will destroy everything. And uh and then when you, do, when you do right, it corrects everything. Mm. And it was just very black and white to me as a 12-year-old. And then at the same time, I became radically in love with Jesus Christ.
2: Who's <laughs> <laughs> famous for doing things right. It's yeah, good.
3: And so all of that sort of settled in. And then me also inherently wanting to be good. I, you know, got to say. Taylor Swift's new documentary. I did not expect to mm. feel what I felt watching that. I I have a complicated relationship with her. And I really loved her for a while and then the last two albums musically I just didn't like them as much. And then things, you know, there was all this stuff about her and I just started to kind of not as like her as much. But I watched this documentary and I could not have felt more empathy and related to her on cuz she talks in it about always wanting to be perceived mm. as good. Yeah. And I felt that it was interesting that she chose the words perceived as good because she knows she's not perfect and she's a flawed human being, but she doesn't want anyone to ever see those flawed parts. And I relate to that a lot. And I felt myself crying for her. (laughs) And I'm back in love with Taylor (laughs) Swift now. I still want different music from her. Sure, of course. Um, It doesn't like hit me the way her older stuff does, but yeah. Um, But yeah, I was just like this. And then it. And social media, to to your question, social media, especially when Trump hit, is when all of this really blew up for me um, in that it was a recipe for disaster in that I felt compelled to speak out uh, on every single little thing that I felt Mm. was morally my duty to speak up about and to fight the wrong and the bad. But what I realized, because at the same time I was also starting – in 2015 i started therapy a new kind like i did started doing cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with all of these mm. issues with me which had come to a real bad place in like 2015 i was very very depressed and it was all taking this stuff apart so i'm already evolving and maturing at this point and really starting to deal with my black and white thinking all or nothing good or bad you're evil or you're you know these mm-hmm. the, the the thing i distilled much more <laughs> eloquently in the beginning of this joke and so then I'm um, working on all this and I see it happening on Twitter with everyone around me. And now we're all... I was like, oh, it was, I thought this was just my thing. And, yeah. and now I'm seeing it happen to everyone and everyone's being sucked in. And I am still have this relationship with it and struggle. And social media was punishing me in that we are having so many purity tests on... And it's still happening, but like you're either... You're either with us or you're against yeah. us, you know. If you do this, you aren't good anymore. And it was a lot for me, like especially like I remember really feeling it very intensely after Trump was elected around the Women's March because there was so much criticism of the Women's March and I had gone and I was suddenly deciding that I was bad for going because I was a white woman. Mm-hmm. I didn't wear a pussy hat, I know, but I was feeling really intensely, I felt, I would read a tweet that criticized white women at the Women's March, and I would take it as a criticism of me, yeah. and even though I knew some of it did apply to me and some of it didn't, I would just suddenly decide, okay, well, that's bad, but what am I supposed to, you know, and I, I remained silent because I knew <laughs> it's not about my feelings, yeah. You know, in that situation, centering myself, those things. I'm always trying to follow these rules. Yeah. But See, I realized it was just just destroying me. I wouldn't be able to do anything during the day because I'd be thinking about this stuff all day long.
2: How do you then make it so it's, you know, it's like a minute of this joke? How do you get like, okay, have all of this. As you explained, it's like the entirety of your thing. And now it's mm-hmm. also happening to society. Mm-hmm. How do you get to like, okay, purity is sort of this idea. Purity mm-hmm. will be the, the word I'll use. Yeah black and white world that I feel like we're in right now and especially for me and my particular brand of anxiety that I'm working through therapy and like that's the thing let me just say how do you is that you've talked about you go on so you talk about a while and like okay these sentences get to it
3: yeah I mean there was a really messy version at first where I was trying because I realized I needed to set up the stakes and that's a huge part of storytelling Mm -hmm. is to explain the stakes and I really learned this with my book too which is like why are we why is this important why do we care why are we here? And I had to make that clear to the audience. And so that's actually can be a problem for me as I over explain things, mm. but I felt with this story it needed to be explained. Otherwise, it would just be like, what are we talking about crafting yeah. for? <laughs> Why are we getting into this? Um and I think it that really developed from doing it in Edinburgh. I needed a way to transition between what was before that joke into this. And yeah. it was the stuff that came before was about social media purity tests and trolling and and uh how angry oh, people get online sense. and so i was transitioning into this i think <laughs> i might be misremembering mis- the order but yeah but yeah so that's i'm mean, distilling it down took actual like i had to sit there and write it
4: mm-hmm.
3: better because i would read when i would transcribe um i would naturally start editing myself and i will be like no write it down how you how you said it so you can see how fucking terrible it is you dumb bitch <laughs> I have a great inner monologue. <laughs> yeah, you're very
2: mean to yourself. <laughs> you're a very harsh editor to yourself. But it, what, I think what it does, and I want to, as we talked into sort of section two, craft Nook, Catalyst, the call to action, um, the first sort of big laugh you get in, in the joke sort of is the beginning. It's of,
3: Fifteen minutes <laughs> in. is the it's um,
2: odd choice. So you sort of build up this sort of idea purity, mm-hmm. which there's some laughs in it, but it sort of really is set up and then he goes. I recently faced a real crisis of conscience while creating a craft nook in my home, and that sort of mm-hmm. was a laugh. Yeah. And it, what is nice, and I think what the first part of the joke does is, it it's um, it's a sort of persona laugh. It's not like mm-hmm. a joke. Mm-hmm. It's a like it's a oh you like. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, it was the, you need that part to be like trying to get un- teach these people who a person who is a type of person who would care this much about the things you're about mm-hmm. to hear. Um, I know we've talked about. I've heard you talk about in different times, in different interviews, struggling to be like, "What is my persona? What is the sort of thing that people take away from me?" Yeah. Do you feel? Do you see what I mean with this joke? That if mm-hmm. it is helpful to sort of yeah. like what it does to get the audience to be like, "I know the type of person this is."
3: Yeah. It's uh, this doing the Edinburgh show, and every all my material since then has been way better, uh, a way better depiction of who I am. Mm. Um, and not just me as a mirror or an ob- observer. Um, and you know, I've told jokes, all my jokes have been personal and my, about my life or whatever, but they don't necessarily tell you who I am in an easy to understand way. They're just like, here's something that happened to me. Yeah. these jokes feel more like this is who I at the core of my being, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it feels like I'm moving into this like, place where I am someone who is maybe an elderly woman deep down and I like crafting and <laughs> gardening and miniatures and soothing and warmth and maternal but I'm not a mother you yeah. know that but that means my my maternal love is for everyone I don't reserve it for my own offspring you know I've been moving into this like yeah this is sort of my core and and then um, that I'm someone who's come past this moral anxiety I have it mm-hmm. but I have learned how to deal with it and so I think this joke is uh, Hobby Lobby is about confronting it um, and everything since has been you know being more comfortable with who I am and showing that you you've,
2: you've said um, that sometimes when you sometimes in your voice on stage you'll see your mother mm-hmm. Um and, and 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 maybe that's not necessarily the case anymore. You said mm-hmm. that's in an interview a while ago, but do you do you feel like that's maybe part I have of? No it? idea what you're talking
3: about.
2: You <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I which is mine? No, What's I gonna... <laughs> don't
3: remember anything I've said. I, I mean, who who uh, literally? Yeah. It's like
2: one interview you said mm-hmm. in like 2013. But, yeah, yeah, Thank but you, you said it was
3: creep. <laughs> yeah, Jesse has been stalking me, and mm-hmm. I've never been more flattered and turned on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, considering
2: you said that once, you feel like that holds true. Is that what do you think that is part of the maternal instinct you're feeling?
3: I performed in, at Acme Comedy Co in Minneapolis, and some people came that I know not well, but I know them. And they told me after it was like the best feedback I've ever gotten. They were like, You have so much empathy for your audience. Mm. And I was just like, hmm, Thank you for noticing. <laughs> Because I do. I'd want people to have a good time. Yeah. And I think right now there's so much arguing about what comedy should be, which is uh, you're already off the wrong yeah. foot if you're going what comedy should be, because it's art and yeah. there's nothing that you're already lost if you're having that conversation. But there's a lot of people who are very strongly pushing the idea that comedy should anger people and offend, that it should do that. Yeah. That if you're not doing that, you're not telling the truth. You're not saying what everyone's thinking. It's like, well, I don't think everyone's thinking <laughs> yeah. those
4: things. In <laughs> Maybe, fact, I think a lot of
3: people aren't, yeah. and that's why they're mad. Okay. <laughs> but I think my comedy just isn't that. And so I've felt in the past I've felt so like down on like I'm not doing it right. And I'm not it must mean I'm not funny. Mm-hmm. It is possible to be a loving person on stage and be funny. There are so many examples.
2: Um there's a part of this section where the the punchline is um, that you're a little bit a little bit wet right now because I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. dripping, and <laughs> I want to point out because I feel like your previous album was much more sexual. Yeah, it uh, was. And can you talk about sort of the the evolution away from that? Also, sort oh, of, I, and,
3: well, I stopped having sex. Yeah, that's perfect. But That's what and what how do
2: you decide to then still use <laughs> it here and there? Uh,
3: Yeah, no, I think that I, t- I just write about what is going on and what I'm interested in. And um, I all, my first album was that material was largely written right after I got divorced and I was single for the first time as an adult. And it was just so much fun to talk about on stage. It was mm-hmm. a moment. It was a time of discovery for myself and exploration in every way. And. It was so fun to talk about it on stage and I was also like, I mean, I wasn't trying to be sexy on stage or anything because I think my material about it is not exactly alluring yeah. um, and those who are allured by it, I, I'm suspicious of, mm-hmm. I mean, whatever, people can Have be turned thirst. on by me if they want to be, I'll take it, but um, <laughs> no, it, it was a very different album and I think in some ways my, my material moved into a, what I hate the word clean. Cause it, it's like, I think my second album is actually much more edgy. And more grown up, more grown up and like, and sophisticated and cuts harder, I think on issues. But, um, but I was moving into more clean material because I was doing so many colleges and, and co- some colleges ask for not to crush. They say or, PG-13. I mean, yeah. and I can still do. Like, I, one of my jokes that I now find very hacky um, <clears throat> is... What was your own jokes that you find? <laughs> the joke where I, I do the rap lyric thing where it's, like, pumping pussy-like yeah. gas, and it was, like, one of my first jokes. I, it was the first joke I ever did on TV, yeah. and, like, people... It was such a crowd-pleaser, and I would open all my college shows with that because it just made them comfortable yeah. with me. And it was a sexual joke, but it's not a it's not a dirty joke in a way it's just a it's rap lyric i find it very hacky now and i would i hope to never do it again but um but i think um college kids didn't want to hear about my divorce Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to hear about um like advanced sex stuff because most of the people i'd be performing for were virgins and they were just it was uncomfortable and it was uncomfortable for me it'd be like Performing for a bunch of teenagers and being like, "Do you know what squirting is?" Like, God, awful. It was a, it was like I was an aunt in yeah. the room, being like, "Okay, kids, let's talk about your vulva." Everybody, get out a mirror. You know, just too much for me. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to, you know, and just my material was naturally moving in this other direction anyway. But the Hobby Lobby thing, I could I couldn't do at certain colleges because certain college kids, if I could tell, I was at a college that was dumb. Yeah. Like for the dumber kids. I couldn't do this joke because they just wouldn't. They couldn't get it. Yeah. They were like crafting ha- abortion. What? You know, like and not that they don't know what those things are, but like the, the message of the joke is more. You have to like pay attention for a while. Yeah. It, it, right. It also is a long story. And I would do it at like schools that I felt were smarter and they would love it. <laughs> but it w- I only did it a few times at colleges. So it wouldn't work.
2: So section three is the stores. um, which feels very what's interesting about it it feels like it's almost like a joke that a person who's not from America would move to America yeah, and write yeah <laughs> because it's like about the stores so yeah. i had to
3: write that yeah because i did the joke i did the show I did a tour leading up to Edinburgh. I wanted to be ready mm-hmm. for Edinburgh. I knew, they, you know, I'd been advised, don't show up thinking that you're going to work it out because you're performing every night, which is a very American. Be like, oh, I'm d- doing it every night. I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there. And they're like, no, the reviewers come on night one. You got to be ready. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God. So um, I took it very seriously and I did it. I booked a tour. And um, in Nashville, I had some friends come, one of whom grew up in the UK. And she was like, so the concept of Hobby Lobby might be a bit of a problem for people in the UK because we they just don't have big box stores the way we do. And mm-hmm. like you need a, you need an entry point that makes more sense and sets it up for them. And like, yes, we have stores, like big department stores and stuff, but it's just not like it is in America. So I wrote this for that. Yeah, and in it, America. Ends, uh, you it, I wrote it in America to get ready for Edinburgh, and it worked great. In the UK, like, but it it works even better here because people get it even more. Yeah. and it uh, also
2: has the, the Bevmo joke is like the jokiest joke of the joke. Yeah, There's Bevmo joke, which is Bevmo. They only sell beverages, dicks. They only sell dicks. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. They sell sporting goods too, dicks.
3: Yeah, Nikki gave me the dicks line, and then I think I added the, the tag. The yeah, she goes. She said you should say dicks. They only sell dicks. Um and then i added that just kidding they sell sporting goods to <laughs> dicks that gets such a big laugh anytime i do that it's it's truly a joke it's like yeah a it's joke. a joke <laughs> yeah yeah
2: um the amazon part what why include the amazon part what do you think that we say you oh, could Oh uh,
3: just because in my i'm a logic queen like i i'm like i i feel i get very caught up in logic and it's why i usually don't like to give feedback on other com- comedians jokes if they ask me cuz i'm like you will be caught in a tangle of logic problems if you ask me what I think. I'll be like, well, technically, (laughs) that won't work because what you're saying is um, I brought in the Amazon thing because I was, like, in my head being like, why didn't I just go home and order this online, you know, and in this immediate – it it is a joke. There is a lot to be said. I mean, even though I don't consciously think about it, but it's a joke fundamentally also about capitalism and, like, how sad it makes (laughs) us all feel of, like – you know, and and just how petulant we become in it, just like, I want it now. Yeah. Like, where's my thing? I should have access to everything I want at all times, and it should be cheap. It's just such an American attitude. And it's <laughs> killing the entire yeah, earth. Yeah. It's really sick.
2: So we go into uh, section four. Across the threshold, you're mm. now talking about Hobby Lobby. We're still not in the story. <laughs>
3: it's such a fucking long joke. It is great. I mean, it is. There's a lot to it. I yeah. made sure. I made sure there was a laugh every couple. I was like, I got. I can't just be talking.
2: The, the The Hobby Lobby part's really interesting because I think you'd expect to be like, now it's time to rail against Hobby Lobby, but it's it's almost like you try as hard as possible to not make it seem like to try to present it evenly as possible. Yeah. You're like, I might say this. Their interpretation would be different. Yeah. They would say they went to the Supreme Court to fight for what they believe in, their right to refuse, to cover mm-hmm. certain, all that. Mm-hmm. Why do it that way? Why not just be like, time to rail against Hobby Lobby?
3: Um, because I, in a way, wanted to show what how insidious what they were doing was they would say this yeah. and i want to just plainly say what they're doing so that the more intelligent people in the audience will understand that what they were doing was really fucked up yeah that they believe as a that they are a corporate and there was times when i would add that line and be like as we know corporations are people
4: mm-hmm.
3: and you know i think that that idea is dangerous and you know and that it, so i probably could make that line even better if i worked on it more but just part of it also I made it very specific so that no one could argue with me about it. I always have imaginary future arguments mm-hmm. when I'm making anything. Um I'm always imagining the critique before it happens and I wanted to make sure that I was getting my f- cuz I'm also obsessed with the abortion debate. Yeah. Like I and I I don't have the bravery yet to really get into it on stage cuz I do think it's just one of those topics, it's very hard to talk about on stage. Um, and even if you're someone who doesn't give a shit, it's still hard. Yeah. And I'm someone who really gives a shit about like the audience feeling comfortable. And so, you know, I'm like,
2: yeah, it takes you you 10 minutes to set up a hobby lobby. Yeah. I mean,
3: this is the most I can do. So, but I'm obsessed with the arguing. So I, and I've spent a lot of time reading both sides and what they argue Mm -hmm. and really tried to dissect it down to the littlest details so that's why i added in like certain types of birth control because hobby lobby did not uh did not actually try to ban all of it mm-hmm. but it was certain types that they believe is abortion but it's actually not you know and i that's why i always say it's like this is a matter of belief yeah and that is why it's so dangerous because it's you know they're imposing their beliefs on their employees and potentially because the 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 arguments that they made to the Supreme Court have really, really bad consequences mm. that can also affect, like, discrimination against people uh, of different, you know, gender, race, religion. I mean, it's it opened a gate. Yeah. And, like, that's how the far right is trying to actually dismantle our freedoms, not necessarily with your big butthead Trump in the office, although that helps their case. It's with these court cases, which yeah. is why it's so so urgent that we get him out, so we don't have four more years of him stacking the courts, you know, and opening these floodgates back to like you know even more regressive than we were in the fifties, you know.
2: the the um the section then has this part where you you sort of have an internal monologue of why you're justifying going in. Yeah. Do, is it meant to sound kind of like bullshit? Like you're trying to be someone of an un- unreliable narrator, or not even you're the narrator being like this person. Yeah. You want to be like this. I, this is a justification. This is not. Real. So
3: I didn't actually think that when I went in there. It Wasn't yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go fuck shit up. I'm just going to go see. I mean, I really wanted to, my basket. I wanted to see if they had it. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and I'd never been in. And I was like, I. And my boyfriend was with me, which I don't bring this part into yeah. it. And he was. He's been to Hobby Lobby many times. <laughs> you know, he grew up in Spokane. He grew Washington. up in a Hobby Lobby. He grew. I mean, he, he did almost. His like, all, his mother is an incredible quilter his whole family is mm-hmm. extremely crafty and like art, art artsy. Um, but they're also like very rural or suburban. So they're, there's this interesting, they're very interesting mm-hmm. to me in this way, but um, they're uh, so he's been to Hobby Lobby many times. He's like, you don't understand what Hobby Lobby is, Sarah. And I'm like, well, what, it's gotta suck. And he's yeah. like, no, I, I think, you know, so he's like, and <laughs> it was literally- Did you
2: consider including him in the joke, or you're like, it's much- No, fun. it
3: just was too much to yeah. add that him in. It didn't need it. But we literally were at this, in Burbank, there's this long row of every store. Like, Michael's, hmm. Target, Dick's, you know, it's, it's like, it's crazy. It's like, it's what America was, it's like the dream, you know, it's like big box after big box. And then across this big- uh like street uh, this huge intersection is like hobby lobby by itself you know (laughs) so he was like we gotta go yeah so we went in there and then and i saw it and um yeah as
2: as so this is essentially the midpoint of the joke and we have not gone to the hobby lobby yet but um how are you how does this sort of pacing evolve are you like are you building out outs if sort of parts of it aren't working like Oh yeah, I've abandoned ship before. So you used to be yeah. like, you'll stop? Are there certain points where you're like, Oh, and then I went to the Hobby Lobby and it sucked. Anyway, so
3: Yeah, I mean there have been times where I will go, you know what? I'll literally just say this. I'll be like, You guys aren't into this. I'm just gonna move on. You and I'll be like, You can't handle this. You're not sophisticated enough. <laughs> I'm <usually gonna> laugh. <laughs> I'm and then I usually get a laugh. You don't deserve it.
4: You don't deserve uh, it. I'm gonna move on. You don't get It's okay.
3: No I'll talk Lobby. about I'll you know, and I sometimes when I did colleges I would be like I would give them a choice. It'd be like, I have a joke that's like about this, or I have a joke about this. Which way do you want me to go? And they would yell out, and I would go in that direction. Sometimes they would go in the Hobby Lobby direction. That's interesting. Yeah.
2: Um, Choose so- your own adventure. <laughs> <laughs> so, section five, you're at the Hobby yeah. Lobby. Uh, fun and games, promise. Oh, wait. I friend- wanted to say one oh. thing
3: about the past section. Sure. You said, Did you go in? So, this is what I actually do. I will bargain with myself morally. I'll mm. go, um, I'm about to do something bad, but I'll make up for it. I'll carbon offset. That's like how in my sure. head. I'll morally offset it. i'll I'll make a donation. I'll make sure that I'm volunteer. you know, like and yeah. i'm I'm not, not in the hobby lobby sense, but like in my life, if I feel like I'm doing something that isn't morally pure, and we're talking, I mean the most minor shit. I mean, truly like dumb level shit. Mm. It's not like, oh I will steal this, and now I'll, you know whatever. Anyway, so
4: yeah.
2: So um, what did you want to convey? You know, like essentially this is the, it's almost the entire section is a bit of an act out. So what did you want to convey to the, about you in the Hobby Lobby to an audience? What do you, in so much as this is Sarah, the character you're talking about. Yeah. What do you want them to think about this person?
3: Um, Just like, what would I be like if I was in my candy store mm. that I was not supposed to be in? Um, and I want people wanted really wanted people to feel relate to that feeling of uh, how impossible it is to be morally perfect in this country, and that we all face those little dilemmas every day. If we're conscious, I mean, it doesn't even matter what side yeah. you're on. You know, it's like people will yell at you for like you shouldn't go to Salvation Army. They're they're a cult. They hate gay people. You shouldn't donate there. You shouldn't go in there. You know, there's a, there's a problem with every corporation or organization. Almost everyone, yeah. and if you dig, you'll you'll be lost. You won't. You'll just won't be able to do anything with your life if you're trying to be pure. Even you know along even, your lines.
2: This 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 section has a sort of. I mean, it's not even a callback. It's a full further continuation of the section about ins- inspirational quotes. Um, mm. To those who don't know, you open mm. this set with a, a section about inspirational quotes. W- what is it about inspirational quotes? How did that emerge? How do you sort of mm. feel? Like it ties sort of these things together.
3: Um, That was one of the jokes that I had already written was like, this is gold and I've got to have this in my show. So I had to make it fit somehow. Um, The callback fit perfectly because those quotes are everywhere in Hobby Lobby. Inspirational quotes on rustic pieces of driftwood and multiple fonts are just, it's just jam packed in that store. It started with actually Scott, my boyfriend's, um, family like one of his cousins her house is like just covered in it Mm -hmm. i mean we like counted one time it was like 58 (laughs) like signs and that's when i started working on the joke and that so that joke was probably one of the first ones of this um collection of jokes that i had started and um i think it fits in because it is also speaks to the platitudes that we all like you know that one of the reasons those things are so annoying, and I got l- into this later in the um, Edinburgh show, mm. which is that it was a, a story about my mom's funeral where the it's platitudes. It's like, you know, mm. just, she's with you. I saw a butterfly on my minivan this morning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, and it's, but it doesn't help. And it doesn't make you feel good and it doesn't change anything. But it makes some people feel good when they see that. So I feel like I'm judging them. Uh, um, but anyway, yeah. the the... <laughs> For me, they're they're not um, they're not specific enough. I like specificity, that, and that of course those signs were everywhere in Hobby Lobby.
2: So you, you know? so you buy the basket against mm-hmm. your bed adjustment, or yeah. you just buy it, and then yeah. so section six mm-hmm. Trump surprise it's yeah. a Trump joke. Eleven yeah. minutes in, <laughs> um, but it's different. I mean, the joke is that you're Trump. This is why Trump won. No, it's worse. I'm Trump. Mm-hmm. What about that angle in as a person who yeah. You know, hypothetical a person reads you say Trump jokes are bad. They go see you at Edinburgh mm-hmm. and you have this big thing and then surprise. Yeah, Why, mm-hmm. if you're doing a Trump joke, why was it that? Which is more reflective? because
3: one of my issues with Trump is that I feel sorry for him and I feel empathy for him and mm-hmm. I feel that that I shouldn't and I can't help it. And I actually have to limit the amount of times I will listen to him talk or spe- see him because I have to have enough hatred against him in my heart to fight
4: mm-hmm.
3: for what the good cause is, which is to get him out of office. I think he's horrible and he's evil, but I still feel empathy for him. And I, like, for instance, that picture that just came out with his tan on his face, yeah. that's the type of thing that makes me start feeling sorry for him. And I relate. Sometimes he does things that I see myself in him because that's how I view everyone. Yeah. I, I'm just someone who goes, Oh you're I'm like that. I could see how. I'm I almost have too much empathy sometimes where it's like um I'm no longer standing up for myself and I'm giving. I'm letting someone like beat me down mm-hmm. that is actually a wrong bad person, but I can't let them. I'm like, "No, but he's good. He didn't mean to do that." And um so that part is really cuz I there's so many things Trump does. I mean, I sh- I could do a whole separate yeah. hour on things he does that I think I see myself doing and other people do but that person shouldn't be president that's why I'm not president so that's like the the end thing that I always come back to Um, but yeah
2: you I've heard you talk I mean I've heard you say in a recent interview that you've are trying to be less of a people pleaser to the audience I mean this Mm -hmm. section is you know what is it like to sort of tell the audience why you're not a good person or what about you is not good I mean did Mm -hmm. you have to sort of build up to that was it hard to do this part or is it just sort of hard to do no. general?
3: That's easy for me to <laughs> yeah. trash myself. Got it. Very easy for me to do that. Um,
2: then, I mean, in the reverse, in the post Nanette, yeah. was it hard to trash yourself in a way that felt to have a certain amount of dignity?
3: Or- no, because I felt what I was saying was universal. Hmm. I mean, I think whether people can admit it or not, they, we all have very childish, selfish parts of us. And... S- some people are comfortable with those parts and some people aren't. Um, and it's hard to admit that, you know, he's, that's truly like, he is like a part of the psyche, no. like the id. He, he It's very id-like, yeah. but it's the Trump is very specific to him, but it's like- Like id but shorter.
0: Yeah, he's and
3: faster. but that's also part of why we should uh, look at that and use it to defeat him, mm-hmm. you know, and understand what works against him. I mean, Nancy Pelosi tearing up that speech was on his level and it hurt, you know, like he yeah. hates that shit, you know, and not that I need him to hurt. I just want him gone. Yeah. I don't. I, I, the man is no way that guy has a great life. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, but maybe he does. He's uh, he's drugged up enough. Maybe he doesn't feel any of it. <laughs> so section sec, sec section
2: seven. Mm. uh the finale um you talk about hobby lobby and all this stuff that happens we talked a little bit about (laughs) my
3: favorite part of the joke (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it's
2: it's also should be noted that it's like arguably a third of the joke Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. the epilogue um what i think is really interesting is you approach especially cheryl you create this character and you feel bad (laughs) for her um i think it's interesting you, you approach her with empathy and sort of sadness yeah which is why that comedic choice instead of sort of like, everyone's favorite righteous indignation. Like, Mm -hmm. you could have been like, see, they're all hypocrites and blah, blah, blah. Why? why?
3: Because I truly believe that when all the, uh, just the racking of my brain and reading so many pro-life Twitter, uh, like, reasonable people who seem, they're never Trumpers, but they're still so off from where I am. They're so far apart. I'd look for those commonalities and ways to feel empathy for them. Um, and I think that it is important to do that to a point, I mean, like, you know, where there's a point where it's like, okay, now you're denying the humanity of everyone else and I no longer can abide Mm -hmm. by that, you know, but the Cheryl character, I, I grew up, Cynthia. Cynthia Cynthia sorry ha, we listened to it just <laughs> yeah. now for sure uh, uh, We listened to the version where you, yeah. before you changed the name sorry <laughs> Cynthia yeah Cynthia is <laughs> shit sorry Cynthia is um someone I know you know it's yeah. like it's I grew up evangelical christian southern baptist and I was around all this and I understand where they're coming from. In fact, the museum thing, to me, makes 100% sense to me. It's like, why would you have a museum without something actually old in there? What is the point? And so I was just so blown away. And that's the newest part of the joke, because it happened in July. And I was just like, this is crazy. Like They have this museum. And it's open. You can go to it. Yeah. You know, I, I need to go to it so I can like really feel it all. Well, then you know. the
2: joke is. Now you then what? I'm gonna have
3: to bring it back, <laughs> yeah. and it's gonna become like 30 minutes long. But um, but yeah, the I I look for those things because I know that when I started out in comedy, I mean, I wasn't um, a very religious person by the time I got to New York. You know, yeah. I was not going to church anymore. But there's so much of my upbringing that I value. My values go- come from that and there's parts of Christianity that I think are beautiful and like love you know and just it's a a code that I live by whether it, I'm calling it that or not um but when I got to New York I would see a lot of people trashing religion in a way that made me yeah. suspicious if they'd ever experienced any kind of spiritual connection or faith in something or been in a community where there's a magical thing happening that uh, where there's love in a room where it's like you you do, I've never spoken tongues, but, like, you can get slayed in the spirit. I mean, yeah. like, it's not something you, when you grow up in it and you have those experiences, it's so intense. And, um... And it, so it'd be
2: disingenuous to be cynical about certain parts of...
3: Yeah, I'm parts. very cynical about a lot of religion, but I don't want that to, I want to come from a place of authority. Yeah, And I think so much authority comes from just simply understanding.
2: Yeah, it's also much more other complicated. It's so easy to go, they're yeah. just stupid. Yeah.
3: It's like, well, I mean, yeah, maybe, but like they have a reason for what they're doing that is very real to them. How do you end? So it's
2: this big thing. How do you approach an ending of thing to be like, okay, <laughs> we now have to land this plane that <laughs> I took up as high as possible?
3: Oh, God, I don't even remember how it ends. So on. it
2: ends no. oh, with... <laughs> uh, I mean, I have it written out, so no. I just, so...
3: no, what's the very last line? I'll remember it as soon as you mm-hmm. say it. Mm-hmm, got this out, <laughs>
2: Um From now on, they wanted to make the regime perfect, and I wanted my craft nook to be perfect. From yeah. now on, let's just agree to no oh. longer do business with terrorists.
3: Yeah. You know, it's like lesson learned. Yeah. You know, but... Um, it's about a mutual respect of like walking away from one another, even though Hobby Lobby does not care about me <laughs> yeah, in any yeah. way, shape, or form. Um, but it's an the, agree
2: to disagree, we're both, well, we're What all can fun. I yeah. do? Yeah. yeah. I
3: mean, what I can do is not shop there, but I also know m- just me shopping there is not enough. Yeah. Huge boycotts work to an extent, they do work, but they have to be so big, which is part of why the Women's March in my mind is important, something yeah. like that you have to Moshe Kasher said this when, cause I worked at his show when the women's March happened, he was like, you know, I was seeing all this stuff online about people criticizing it and th- those critiques were valid. But also he said, if you want a movement to go mainstream and actually make a huge impact, you're going to have to invite some assholes to yeah. the party. You can't be purists anyway. So it goes back to the theme.
2: Okay. So now on the other side of this joke, um, and having seen comedy over the last few years, I think though we can still maybe agree on sort of the, the idea that there's flaws in jo- jokes about Trump, in yeah. the most purest sense. But ha- what have you learned about comedy? At you know, I think even in that article you said there were people like, "Oh, Trump winning is good for comedy," which I think is mm-hmm. a crazy thing to even to yeah. assert. But there there has been shifts in comedy as a result that I would mm-hmm. say I, I've seen like. You'd say maybe comedy has improved or whatever that means, but for you, what have you seen? how have you dealt it with the situation that you laid out that you have found to be positive? What have you learned that is more effective? What has this joke taught you
3: I really am proud of this joke because I don't I haven't seen anyone do these do this yeah uh, th- to say these things about him or um, about this climate. I feel this is a unique joke. Um, And part of it is because it's built on a real life experience that I had. But I did other jokes in that Edinburgh show that I realized while I was there, they were hacky. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard through the curtain after someone going, all the American comedians are starting their show the same way. And I went, oh, fuck. So I changed that. Um, But since coming back, I have seen so many of the same jokes. And sometimes it's the joke is I can't talk about Trump because blah, 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 blah um well, why is this joke good <laughs> <laughs> well this joke is great yeah no this joke is great because i think it goes to more of a core of the climate right now yeah. as opposed to what uh, orange haired orangey cheeto hand in chief you know what i mean like yeah. it's not those easy jokes it's just more about the core of who we are uh or at least who i am and so that's why it's a more specific entry point into that but yeah um I want to talk
2: very briefly about the Comedy Civil War. Um, you recently I, a thing. I'm
3: happy to talk about
2: it on I
3: know what to say and what not. Sure. To say.
2: <laughs> yeah. I so to summarize, mm. um I think it's an it's a overblown and sort of recklessly inflammatory name mm. for what is yeah, it's a hilarious. pretty niche thing, which yeah. is there's a certain subsect of comedians and comedy fans who are sort of united around um their sort of point of view, defending free speech at all costs above other people's sort of mm-hmm. safety even. Mm-hmm. There are certain events that sort of triggered this. Um, the Louis C.K. being booked yeah. in clubs, they would defend Louis C.K. and the right for him mm-hmm. to do it. Probably the biggest was then Shane Gillis being mm-hmm. cast on SNL, then fired when after it was revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things he said. And then you wrote a piece recently and you talk about how you would often do these threads yeah. where you would respond to them. Yeah. Um, but you recently decided not to do that yeah. anymore. Can yeah. you talk about yeah. that piece you wrote and summarize sort of um, what you learned? So
3: last summer I got into a dust up online with some um, comedy fans. I call them Shithead Island. And mm-hmm. it's Shithead Island is the fandoms of certain comedy podcasts. And this is not an indictment necessarily on the hosts themselves. Um, some of them are probably really nice people or normal. I, I don't know. But the fans are so crazy yeah. that I don't want to ever visit Shithead Island because... And I'm using a, a real... I will give you one real example. I did Opie and Anthony like twice, mm-hmm. years and years ago. Well, cut two years later, Opie gets all, you know, fucked up and fired because he does this racist tirade on Twitter. And when that happened, I mean, I hadn't said boo about it. I, I didn't even realize what was going on. And I hadn't tweeted about Opie. I was on the show for maybe five minutes total. Like, years ago. And his fans were now tweeting me, you know, you better speak up for him or you're, you know, you're going to get it. Like, I mean, I I was being harassed and I hadn't even said (laughs) anything about it. And I was like, who is this? And I realized, oh, these are also the type of people that have been for years being mean to me online. They follow me for some reason. And it was just like, oh, they're from there. They're from that area of fandom. And I don't, you know... Look, I'll, I have been harassed by these people, this group of people, and I'm putting a big group, yeah. you know, big label on it in many different ways over the years. And some of it has been really bad, like where I have been afraid to go. It has changed the way I operate when I'm on the road. Because when you see a whole Reddit thread of people joking mm-hmm. about, raping you and killing you or wanting you to kill yourself and trying to figure out how to get me to kill myself you can't help but wonder what if one of these psychos shows up and they're talking about i'm gonna go see her perform yeah. and they're they know i'm reading it and they 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 hope i see that and they want me to feel fear and they want me to feel awful um and it worked i i was afraid after that i was like what if one of these fucking psychos shows up and does something to me And that's why I always say women comedians are brave because we are publicly publishing where we're going to be all the time. (laughs) It's like all it takes is one psycho to show up. And it's it's in the back of your head. It's kind of it's it's freaky. But for the most part, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Nobody is, you know, but you can't help but feel a little afraid. But anyway, so I got in this dust up with some of these Shithead Island people. Um, last summer and it was a really bad time it it was bleeding over into my personal life and causing conflict in personal life and i had i like had two days sleepless nights like anxiety my anxiety just spiraling i mean like when i'm having a full-blown anxiety attack i am unable to sleep i'm i'm crying it's a physical thing that's it's like a panic attack but less you know um my heart rate is i mean i'm like sweating i'm I'm crying. I'm I'm talking out loud. I'm like, no, but I'm going to you know, and it just triggered one. And I was so exhausted by it and I was like, why am I doing this to mm. myself? And in the end I'm not gaining anything from being in these comedy debates online. But that was like the lead up to all of it. And yeah. what I realized is I wasn't really doing anything. I wasn't moving the needle. These are Cyclical arguments; the same points are made over and over again. For a while, it was the "Are women funny?" argument. It was just like, "Why are we even having this? Is so stupid." Like the same sides will say the same things. No one's mind has changed. This is stupid. And I got teased by a comedy friend of mine, which is in the article. Like, and it made me be like, "Oh, I can't do this anymore." You know, and you're getting people going. uh, People, I think, started to assume that I'm a comedian that gets up on stage and does Nanette. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's just like, no, I actually don't even really get into this shit yeah, on stage. Your comedy's
2: not about critiquing. No,
3: comedy. and especially now my jokes are about something completely different. And yeah. it's just I'm putting out a wrong impression of who I am and um I'm you know, being trolled in a way that's hurting me and making me scared. Not scared physically, but like nervous to be in a club around some of the comedians that maybe I had a little mm-hmm. dust up with and And that I don't like that feeling that that's dumb. Like, why? This is just, I'm not even involved in it. And, but I care about who gets to do comedy and I care about women in comedy feeling safe. And so I do get passionate about those things, but I don't think Twitter's the place for it anymore. You,
2: you you talk about the, this idea of a coastal paradox, um, which is essentially measuring the coastline. If you zoom out, Mm -hmm. it, the more, closely you measure it, yeah. the more detail it has and actually yeah. the bigger it is. Yeah. Um, and you tie that into sort of how Twitter minimizes sort of are, are the personality of people to sort of bite-size ideas mm-hmm. and they're sort of one side or the You're other. on
3: this side, I'm on this yeah. side.
2: And then um, yeah. I was thinking about how a few things, which is sort of there's this idea that um a. Scott talks about how all filmmakers are film critics in their way and they, they use their films to sort of assert their value system yeah. of what is good or is bad or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about those combines, and you now with some distance from it, and also thinking about this joke, which I mm-hmm. think has the same themes of that mm-hmm. idea of a cultural paradox, do you now think that, like, oh, the best way to sort of convey what I think comedy, what I hope for comedy, is through my yeah. comedy itself?
3: It's. I realize the best way for me to deal with all these things is to create things. So, like... The essay I wrote. I love writing, and so if I get to write something like that, I feel much more satisfied yeah. than just firing off a tweet that is not nuanced in any way and starts putting me in a box and everyone else in another box. And um, and so yeah, my my comedy, my book, you know, anything where it feels like an actual creative expression. Twitter has never been a medium for me that works, mm. and so why? You know, I still use it because I want to like promote myself on it, and we are still reliant on that a little. But um, it's just not what it it, is. I'm not making things on there that are valuable.
2: Something I was thinking about with this joke is it's it's nearly 17 minutes long, and I was like, it like takes up
3: space. It is sort of like this is a
2: big thing Mm -hmm.
3: that like we're gonna stop. Yeah. And we're going to get into this. For a it's something
2: bit. like ma- if an artist did a huge painting and made people reckon with that, yeah. Instead, opposed to like a oh, little thing this yeah. week, does that resonate to you? It's like, do yeah. you feel like that's why it part of it why it became so long?
3: Yeah, I mean, because I had more to say, and um, the audience had to go there with me and I, I actually like so grateful for British or you know for the UK audience Scottish <laughs> I'm like UK British all of it because there was a lot of people there but I'm grateful for those audiences because they actually the, they don't laugh yeah um, which is extremely stressful but they're very engaged yeah and they want to learn from you and they allowed me to do this and breathe and, they're just
2: sort of like we want to meet we just want to know who you are
3: yeah they want to know who you are they want your pain uh, <laughs> and
2: who you are is a valid yeah. way of spending time.
3: Yeah, they they were like, and I would think I had bombed, and then I'd hear through the little curtain, I'd hear someone go, "It was the best show I've ever seen." <laughs> I feel like, or people would apologize. They go, "I'm sorry, I was the one laughing." <laughs> I'm like, "What? You are the only one that made me feel alive out there." Does but that, they just, Does I realized, it make you want
2: to do longer jokes? Do you think? Yeah, you know? yeah.
3: No, I, I right now I'm working on a joke about. Um, and it's nine minutes already. Mm-hmm. And it's about um, uh, meditation and sleep, uh, This sleep cast that I've been listening to. And it's so funny. I like, and I honestly could do an hour cause there's more, I yeah. have so much more to say And, uh, you know, I'm like, that would be a really weird hour. But I could do it. I could try. (laughs) You should do it. Like, and
2: part of it is you do meditation for, like, 20 of the minutes. Yeah,
3: exactly. We all get on the same page, and we become present with each other. That's not a bad idea. But, yeah. But I'm also working on potentially doing Edinburgh again with something from my book. And we'll see. I
4: don't know. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the uh-huh. Laughing Round. It's like a lightning round, but because uh-huh. it's comedy, it's Got a it. Laughing Round. Okay.
3: Um, <laughs> wow. Thanks. Good job.
2: Um, do your favorite joke? Joke? Street joke?
3: Um, it, my sister wrote it. That's okay. I'll tell you. Where does the worst band in the world live? Where? Three Doors Down. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> <funny. laughs> um, is there a joke? My y- friend wrote a tag. <laughs> Where does the best band in the world live? Where? Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. <laughs>
4: Um, <laughs>
3: That's makes sense. I, it's John Friedman wrote the tag.
2: Um, is there a joke that you wish you could steal? In so much as mm-hmm. it's a different dimension, everything's exactly the same, but this comedian's joke is now your joke, and you get to tell it. In other words, a lot of comedians think of like a joke you heard, and you're like, "Oh, I, I wish I thought of that."
3: Yeah, oh, fuck! I can't think of anything right now. Okay, passing uh, is allowed. All, all <laughs> of Rory Scovel's work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Pretending the microphone wire is a snake or whatever.
3: That's... I love him.
2: Um You Rooster write for Who Wants to be a Millionaire. Yeah. Are you allowed to say any questions you wrote?
3: Okay, so my favorite question I wrote, which I think they might have made a million dollar question. I don't remember, but um I wrote I categorized it as one. Um it was in the movie Ferris Bueller, what painting does Cameron become lost in in the I, I phrased it better but yeah. it, and it's the grand what the, the it's, yeah. <laughs> it's the like you have George to thing. know the movie and you have to know that the name of that painting it's a great question
2: <laughs> um, you were an early blogger.
3: Oh yeah, or yeah, I was, was an early blocker. which was very
2: important to me as a mid tier <laughs> mid era blocker. You wrote for best week ever. TV did, which was very seminal to me. Do yeah. you remember uh, any headlines you wrote?
3: Uh, oh, I remember uh, being very proud of my. Um, I made a video that disappeared, and I watched every kung fu movie. I'm not kidding, every kung fu movie, because my um, husband at the time was really into kung fu, and I noticed like whenever there was these scenes where they. They would just make expressions like they were trying to push out poop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I called it Kung Fu. And <laughs> it just made a montage of Kung Fu guys going...
4: Uh,
3: mm. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing I've ever made. And no one liked it. <laughs> but I did.
2: Um, You did a video where you begged Justin Timberlake to make yeah. music again. That's yeah. sort of... Ended his... Like, I feel like... It worked. It worked. He made music again. But now I feel like he is not known as a musician or Mm. an actor. Yeah, we
3: ruined him. Do you think about that? Uh, I do. I've thought a lot about Justin Timberlake because I feel so... uh, I'm upset with him right now. He's gone in a way that I'm not... I don't know. I have such complicated feelings about him. I didn't like what he did at the Super Bowl. I didn't like his last album. And I didn't like what he did to his wife Mm. recently. He was holding hands with the co-star on a balcony in, in New Orleans. What in the world were you thinking, man? I don't care what was going on. You fool. You're famous. Don't yeah. do that shit. Don't humiliate your wife.
2: Uh, last one. I do you have Do you have a joke that um, has never worked?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you've tried it a bunch of times. It never works. But you're like, that's funny. You'll go to the grave being like, I have this one funny joke. Oh, no one yeah. got it.
3: Um, I do a joke which I actually think is, I stopped doing it, one, because it wouldn't get laughs, but also because it started to feel hacky already, which was, um, I'm not one of those feminists that wants to kill all men, but what if we just did one? (laughs) And then I go, and that usually gets a laugh, but then I'll go, I mean, calm down, we'll pick a bad one, and then I'd cover my eyes, and I like just point. And the, the joke is that, all men are bad right, yeah. <laughs> and and it t- brings it all around to kill all men but people don't either don't get what I'm doing or they're like you are taking it too far you shrill bitch how dare you so I kind of abandon it because there's a lot of kill all men jokes yeah, yeah. right now amongst women comics <laughs> and it's starting to feel old already but I do like that joke
4: the
2: end, the end! The end. thank you that's it for another episode. You can listen to Sarah's "Live, Laugh, Love" wherever you buy or stream music. You can pre-order a copy of her memoir "Grand," which comes out August 11th, wherever books are sold. Follow Sarah on social media at Sarah schaefer one Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Editorial assistance from Amanda Gordon. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing round suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week. Have a good one.
3: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running.